Hello, I'm Somia Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impeak. My guest on today's podcast is Heather McGowan. I discovered Heather through her talks on a number of technology-related conferences, mostly around the use of AI. One thing you should know is that at Impeak, we are creating several new channels on all things peak, meaning that we are creating content on topics related to reaching your peak potential in several areas, including Web3, AI, business and entrepreneurship, health and longevity, and women empowerment. And of course, there will always be an element of focus on emerging technologies in all of these. So you will notice that in the coming weeks, I'll be expanding my podcast conversations and guests to include more of these topics. Today's podcast interview with Heather McGowan is one of these in the new series. So please bear with me as I navigate the new direction. Now, without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation with Heather McGowan. Let's start with your book. Tell me what, what it is. It's just coming out and, and what you're working on these days. Sure. So I think you heard me on the Abby podcast. I was probably back then, which wasn't that long ago, talking about my book called The Adaptation Advantage, Let Go and Learn Fast to Thrive in the Future Work. And the premise of that was that technology, um, exponential growth of technology is coming at us so quickly that we can't think of ourselves as in, in any one fixed way in terms of what we do for a living or even what we pursue to do for a living in terms of education, we've got to get ourselves in a position for constant learning and adaptation and reinvention. And so that came out in April, 2020, the pandemic hit, everything that we thought would happen in three to five years happened in three to five months, and in some cases, three to five weeks. Um, and then over the last, uh, of the three years of the pandemic, probably over the last two years, I was having conversations with executives and realizing that a fundamental shift or rather two transformations had taken place uh, around the world of work requiring four shifts in leadership. And then uh, from that, I spent a hundred days with Chris Shipley and we wrote this book, The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce, which uh, comes out next week. And so you come, well, I don't know when this is going to air. So this came comes out March 8th. So the premise behind this is that, you know, you've heard of the great resignation. That's really part of five interlocking trends. So the great resignation is that churn has been building. People are, there's a tremendous amount of churn in the workforce from the creation of new jobs, to destruction of old jobs, the agency that people feel to move from one job to the next when they feel like they've learned what they need to learn. They want a new experience. They want a new culture. They want a new environment or they just want more money. So we're seeing an increase in churn that really started in 2009, and um, it actually went up higher between 2022 and 23. So it was thought of as a phenomenon in 2021, but it's really one that's continued to grow. Um, the other one's a great retirement, um, and that's 75 million baby boomers retiring between now and 2030. It's a huge exodus of the workforce. Um, the great reshuffle or reskilling, that's people over the course of the existential crisis of the pandemic saying, I'm not doing what I want with my life. This is what I'm really doing in my life. Leaving jobs, leaving industries, retraining and going a new industry. So 53% of the people who left the workforce between 2021 and 2022 went into new jobs and new industries. That's good news. That's people working to their potential and finding better fits. The great refusal is people saying, you know, I'm not going to get punched in the face for $7.25 an hour anymore. Uh, we've been underpaying people at the entry level of the market for a very long time. If they had kept uh, minimum wage on par with pre-pandemic inflation, it would be about $23 an hour. 
So we're way behind on paying those folks. And then the great relocation uh, is people saying, you know what, I, I put the job at the center of my life. And so I moved to a city I never really wanted to live in or a country or a state. And now they're saying, you know, I'm going to decide where and how I want to live first and let work fit into that. And, and Upwork thinks is around the neighborhood of 19 or 20 million people looking to move around. So that gives you the great reset. The other transformation that's taken place. So that first one is a changed relationship between individuals and organizations. The second one is moving from linear to complex. So after 15 years of digital disruption, we're starting to see the complexity in organization going down to every layer. So it used to be a CEO would run an organization and they would have people reporting to them. Obviously, who have skills and knowledge, they don't, they do not. Now we're seeing that at the middle management level and sometimes even on the front lines. So where we had picked leaders in the past because they wanted to be the boss, they liked being an unquestioned expert, they liked being a subject matter expert, they liked making decisions in certainty, all of those things are a huge liability now. So the four shifts in leadership, and this is really the essential uh, aspects of the book, are a mindset shift from managing people where you're the boss to enabling success where you're the coach. A cultural shift from peers as competitors where you pit you people against each other to get your attention or your praise to peers as collaborators. Because not only do the people reporting to you have skills and knowledge you, not, you do not have, they often have skills and knowledge that's unique to each other. So you need them to collaborate on the team to work effectively. A shift in approach from extrinsic pressure to intrinsic motivation. So extrinsic pressure would be punishment, threats, and rewards to get people to learn and adapt, to get people to perform not anymore. You have to meet the workforce where they are, help them become self-propelled with intrinsic motivation. And then finally, a change in behavior from that unquestioned expert boss who leads with you know domination, sometimes fear and humiliation to drive productivity myopically without any regard for mental health or wellness to somebody who creates effectiveness through inspiration, creating high performing teams without burning them out with a focus on caring, love, belonging, and your well-being. So this is the fundamental shift I see that needs to take place in leadership because of the things we've gone through over the past three years. So um, I, we actually have a very similar you know, trajectory in that sense, because I also wrote a book in 2019, which came out in 2020 during the pandemic. Uh, it was called Career Fear and How to Beat It. And it was, I also was like talking about uh, all of these things that I thought were going to happen in the next five to 15 years. And now they're happening in, you know, one to five years, you know, and, and it's, it's all really um, accelerated. So there's, there's that aspect of yes. Um, you know, that having those human skills. So in my, in my book, I had a, a section called human skills. And within that, I was talking about things like emotional intelligence, contextual creativity, mindfulness, etc. Um, you know, but uh, all of that is good and well, but I, I, I worry that um, we are going through this uh, phase right now in the career landscape that um, or, or in the in the business landscape that a lot of people are just like not having it's kind of like they've been blindsided right that they just haven't had an opportunity to to figure out what to do next you know I, I remember showing uh, a number of things that you could do with AI uh, to my um, to my team members 
uh, you know, in, in the art uh, um, kind of creation and graphic creation. And they mm -hmm. were like, oh, my God, like this is going to take our jobs. You know, like like, the, uh, you know, how how do you recommend people, um, you know, dealing with those types of fears? I just I just worry that things are happening so fast that a lot of people don't really know what to do. Yeah, I think uh, in general, a tool, no matter how sophisticated the technology is, as good as the person who uses it. So tools need humans. And whether it's, you know, and I'm familiar with all aspects of generative design, generative design, which is probably one of the things you're, you're talking about, however it's applied, but the best uses of technologies like that are in collaboration with humans. So the machine or the technology develops a series of solutions. The human curates the solutions. The human decides what inputs are selected in order to generate the solutions. And it becomes much more of an uh, interactive, collaborative thing. And getting comfortable with that means extending or augmented human capabilities. And I think that's what we're looking at. Will we need fewer people to do it? That, that is something that it comes up. So when it, you look at you know, process AI and things like um, um, accounting, so it used to be, it would take, you know, I've spoken to accounting firms, it would take 500 hours to do an audit. Well, now they can bring that down to five human hours when they're using technology to pick and flag the things they need to pay attention to. So the human changes their role from processing data to interpreting insights. So the human skills get elevated. Every time you hand off something to technology, you got to reach up and learn something new. Now, does that mean we need fewer people doing some of those jobs? Sure. But we have new jobs emerging that we need people to do. So we're going to go through this rapid reshaping of the workforce at a faster and faster clip, which was really the, the focus of our, of our first book. The second one was much more about if this is all going on, what does leadership do? How do you lead people, keep them motivated and energized and focused and with good mental health? Yeah, definitely. Now, the question is, I guess, uh, you know, with with a lot of people that are being laid off, uh, you know, what would you say to them? Right. So I, when I'm looking at, you know, in, like I'm more focused on Web3 and mm -hmm. there are a lot of opportunities within Web3 there. So, yes, as a lot of opportunities close, new ones open up. Right. So so I guess it's also a question of, you know, as people are are losing these, uh, you know, some of our. Uh, our members who work with uh, big uh, companies, they come to me and say, like, you know, it's just really hard. Like, I've just had to lay off a lot of people, you know. Um, what what do you say to them and how can we uh, overcome that? First and foremost, and this is my personal belief, but I think it's backed up by a fair amount of data, layoff should always be our last choice. We should look to retain, retain and retrain people whenever possible. Because layoffs cause more trauma. I think we're just starting to understand the trauma that layoffs can cause. It can cause a crisis of confidence. It can cause mental distress. It can cause financial distress. And then a lot of times, if you look at the research by um, Jeffrey Pfeiffer at Stanford, you don't actually obtain the financial results you were trying to obtain by the time you pay severance packages, hire consultants, and then hire those people or some people like them back at a higher rate later on. So that's on layoffs. On the people who've been laid off, hang in there. You are still extremely valuable. You will find your next ride. Think about it. Just get like a surfing and getting knocked off a wave. You just got knocked off a wave. It's hard. You're swallowed some salt water. You feel like crap. 
but you know you're going to ride another rave and maybe even a better one than you were just on. So that's my advice to the folks who've been, who've been laid off. Um, and then in terms of what's happening on a more macro scale to the tech sector, um, I think in some ways it's, you know, layoffs are a little bit contagious. So I think it's a little bit of a market reacting to trying to compress human costs, which I'm never a fan of. Um, the other thing is I think that we're somewhere on a, on the Gardner hype cycle. I mean, maybe we over-indexed on on-demand economy, maybe we over-indexed on the speed in which we get to Web3. Um, but those things will come back around. Remember, we've been through this before. The tech sector reshapes because we're optimistic things are going to happen more quickly or stay the same than they've been in the past. And it's going to change. Those people will be redeployed and hopefully in, for them in better roles that will fit them better. I feel, I really feel for the folks who've been laid off, but this is just a moment and it's a moment where, you know, it will rise up again. There will be new roles. There will be new opportunities. And I think when Web 3.0 is, is realized, it's going to be fascinating, but I think it's, I think people can't even wrap their heads around what it could be. I remember, remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the web first came out and I remember I was working at a company and we made baby products. I was a designer. And we just got an email. And I remember an engineer saying to me, well, we need a website. And I said, what's a website? And then he said, this is going to have huge implications on how we how we sell products. I'm like, well, how is email going to have an implication on how we sell baby products? I couldn't wrap my head around it. Now it's so obvious. And I think we'll, that, that next version will become so obvious soon. Yeah. Now think about the fact that, you know, you're talking about email now. Web3 is all about tokens. Because yeah. it's about, yeah, you know, it's about tokenizing ownership right and you can tokenize ownership of anything digital assets create digital assets and create digital scarcity it's actually in some ways the financialization of web3 uh it scares me because we've never had this level of uh, you know with with that financialization pretty much anybody can create a token for anything they can tokenize anything and that opens up a whole new world of possibility of scams and problems and, you know, kind of like uh, early days of the internet when, when the email, uh, when email was enabled, you know, people were sending emails about this, um, the, the uh, prince, the Nigerian prince, right. The, you know, <laughs> like, things like that. So, so, so that would have not been possible before, right. Like, like somebody wouldn't send you a, a handwritten letter, you know, about the Nigerian prince. So in a similar way with Web3 now, you can you have the possibility of uh, a whole new way of scamming people. And, and yeah. there are a lot of problems that comes with that. And there's, um, but there are also a lot of opportunities that comes with that in, uh, you know, in a positive way to create meaningful, um, uh, you know, opportunities. So I think that moving forward, we are probably going to see corporate structures shrink. We're going to see them shrink so that instead the gig economy uh, and, and, you know, smaller kind of communities that are built around creators, you know, that, mm -hmm. that's, I think, I think that Web3 is all about the creator economy. So like we are building this platform that enables creators to tokenize their content to, um, you know, uh, to be able to build a community around their content in a way that was never possible before. Um, and uh, that the reason why we're building it is because we think that that's where the future is going. So, um, so there are so many opportunities here. Uh, you know, sometimes people think of it in uh, like, okay, I'm just going to go and learn some new skill and try and find something new to hire me. But actually, there are so many opportunities. And if you learn to use these tools and, and uh, these technologies, you know, 
there are things you can do. For example, let's say I wanted to create a new, you know, NFT collection, right? And in the past, it would have to be somebody has to sit there and create and like, you know, draw these and, and make all these changes. If you could program, you know, uh, if you could, uh, you know, if, if, even if it's just with prompt engineering, for example, if you could, um, you know, create unique art, unique uh, ideas, you know, that you can draw from collaboration with AI, and then you also have the uh, knowledge of how to use uh, Web3 technology to, you know, the combination of, I think that the, where we're going to see real innovation ha happen is the combination of Web3, uh, you know, and AI, uh, you know, and, uh, and then also uh, in the health sector, you know, like, like genomics and, and all these other new things that are coming. So, so these technologies are, are coming all um, uh, together and they're uh, creating new opportunities. But with all of that said, I still worry. You see, like the reason why I'm concerned to some degree is that I think that, you know, we are limited by our genes and by our, you know, organic DNA. Uh, and in some ways, there is a discrepancy between how quickly we can learn and adapt and how quickly technology is moving. So, uh, so this is one of the things that really keeps me up at night. You know, I think about it quite a lot. And I just, you know, it's one of the reasons why I decided not to have children because I'm like thinking that it's such a, uh, like such a difficult time, you know, to be a human in some ways because because all the all these things are, are happening all, all at once and these technologies are coming together and I just don't know what the future of humanity is going to look like but uh, as a tech philosopher uh, and a, I call myself a transition architect and I'm trying to think about how can we create an architecture of uh, this transition in a way that it will be the least painful and the most beneficial yeah what do you think well I'm a uh, belligerent optimist and I say I'm in the lemonade business, so I can see the upside, and I'm persistent in pushing the narrative on the upside of what we could be doing. So to that end, I don't think that humans should be creating tools to enslave us or make us relevant. I think we should be creating tools that improve the human condition and unleash more human potential. And I see opportunities where we can do that. I mean, look what we've done with you know, insulin and artificial eggs and organ transplants and, you know, augmented intelligence we're starting to play around with, which we have to be careful with. So we've done a lot of things to improve the human condition using technology. Now, just look at the pandemic we've been through. We developed a vaccine in, in 10 months because we had the genomic sequence of the virus, which we'd never had before. We had computational immunology, which we could use on the vaccine candidates to shorten our time to having a, a safe enough vaccine to deploy globally. So we're, we're using some of these technology tools in, in a way that really does benefit us. I do think that market forces can be troubling when it leaves large swaths of people behind. Uh, but so far, I'm still a very much a champion of uh, Team Human. I think Team Human. <laughs> team Human, I like that. I think, I think, yeah, I guess like... <laughs> Maybe because I grew up during the Iran-Iraq war, you know, I, I, I've seen war, you know, so I, I feel like, um, you know, not, I'm not saying that I'm not an optimist, but I guess I'm more concerned in the sense that, you know, I, I think it's one thing to say this is what we should do we, or what this is what, what we ought to do. 
and it's one thing to say this is what's happening and uh, and i think people who are creating technologies are not necessarily thinking about what we should do they're thinking about more shorter you know it's game theory it's like the more sh shorter term um uh, you know benefit or basically of of uh themselves and the people around them so so that does concern me i don't know what the answer is uh, you know like if if uh, i wish like i i suppose you know a lot of people like myself like yourself you know we go into conferences and speak about these things you know if we if we knew what the answer was um we would talk about it and we would give that prescription i i think there is no real um easy answer and in some ways i like that because that's like uh, you know that's a challenge and in in my case i i then decided to go and build a tech platform that would you know maybe uh overcome some of those channel challenges at least for a cohort of creators you know i think that's where that's one of the places where we shine even though I think that th even that part could get disrupted. Um, but yeah, if we're going down, I want to go down with a fight. <laughs> well, you know, if you look at us as humans, we're, we're, we're stupid in a lot of little moments that add up. We've been relatively smart in some of the big moments. We've, we've created some very destructive things. And some of them have used once or twice, and most of them we haven't used at all. So, you know, we've created some pretty horrific biological warfare weapons. We've created nuclear weapons. We've created an atomic bomb. We haven't been stupid enough to use those things, many of those things, and the things we have used, it's only been, you know, one or two tragic mistakes. So I'm hopeful that even given to our worst impulses and given some horrible things at our disposal, even the worst of us have not done that. So when it looks at something that may even seem more benign because it could advance, you know, productivity or efficiency or creativity, um, I think that we're going to wade, you know, look at driverless cars were supposed to be here, I think 2025 or something like that. We haven't made them safe enough. We haven't gotten there. So a lot of the the projections on, you know, the, the um, artificial intelligence, which is really just artificial cognition because we don't have intelligence yet, is not enslaved or eclipsed humans yet. It hasn't taken over. Um, I think we're seeing, you know, flashes of things that seem to some folks like chat GDP seems a little scarier to some folks, but it's still limited. I still think that humans will have the upper hand. And if we put humans in the right place, then we can really extend our potential and our impact in a good way. Yeah. You mentioned in one of your, your talks that digital transformation is really human transformation. Did you, uh, what did you mean by that? I meant by that, you know, you look at examples like the, the simplest and cleanest example is what happened in the first 60 days we went into pandemic lockdown. Suddenly we had to have online learning. Suddenly we had to trust remote teams to work. And we started using tools like the one we're on right now, Zoom. Zoom is more than 10 years old. We could have been using this 10 years ago. We could have extended our potential. We could have been using so much more telehealth and just or distance learning, what it used to be called distance learning, online education. We resisted using it until we were forced to a human behavior change. And when that behavior change happened, suddenly, according to McKinsey, we leapt forward five years in our digital transformation. Did we suddenly create five years worth of tools in those 60 days? No, we changed our behavior to adapt tools that have been around us for a decade. 
So I think that is consistently the the answer when it comes to some of these processes, whether it's digital transformation or the speed in which we're migrating to the cloud. It's human behavior that has to change to enable the use and integration of those tools in what we do every day. Awesome. So I look forward to seeing you in Web three. You know, I think I think that you know once you put uh, the uh, the work that you've done so far bring it into web3 and and you know if you need any help with that let me know because this is what we do and you know and i would love to introduce you to it yeah i'd love that so let's uh, let's figure that out because i've got a headset and i played around a little bit but i don't i don't know where to go or how to make use of it so any any help i can have as a you know if you give my my tour guide yeah web3. absolutely and we when we say web3 um, you know, we don't necessarily mean the AI, uh, so the AR and VR aspect. Yeah. That is a little bit further down the line. We are not quite there yet. There are metaverses; they're not perfect. But, but at the very least, you know what I mentioned earlier, right? Web one was about um, read only. Web two was read and write. Web three is read, write, and share, or read, write, and own, right? And um, it's about understanding that idea of digital ownership which we never had before right that's why i'm i'm passionate about introducing people like yourself to this technology to this you know a new possibility because i think that there lies some of the answers to you know so what should humans do and i think there is this other aspect that we haven't really explored yet and there are possibilities of you know because what one of the biggest issues is that sense of purpose right how do you create a sense of purpose and mm -hmm. i think that digital ownership will enable us to come up with a new way of creating that in a digital environment right because most of the time our sense of purpose in um in the world has come from our work, you know, yeah. or our families, right? So like, you know, often traditionally it's been that women have been at home taking care of children, you know, and they got their sense of purpose that way. And then there are uh, men that go out and work and then they get sense of purpose that way. And of course, you know, there are all sorts of a, spect a spectrum here. There are many women who don't have children and they, or maybe they have children and they still get their sense of purpose from their work or they get their sense of purpose from both. I get my sense of purpose from my work and my two cats, you know, so we mm -hmm. all have got, you know, and, and my my friends. Right. So that we all ha um, have got uh, in the real world, we have got ways that we have our sense of purpose. And the way I see it is that the digital world is an extension of that. And it actually, it doesn't take away anything from what we have in the, in the, in the real world or in, in the you know, physical world, but it actually is, a, is another step towards creating new ways of creating experiences. And yep. part of that comes with, you know, what enables that is digital ownership. So that's why I'm passionate about it. And I think that Web3 is so interesting because it, it enables us to create new experiences. And, uh, you know, part of that experience is interwoven with the idea of ownership. Yeah, so, mm. so yeah, I'm looking forward to introducing you to it and, you know, and, and uh, hopefully get you as passionate about it so that you can also go out into the world and talk about it. Sounds great. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Heather. Uh, it was a great conversation and I look forward to continuing our, our conversation. Excellent. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Heather McGuinn. Please be sure to check out her book. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full interviews are also available on my YouTube channel, The Somi Ariane Show. 